Hello and welcome back to the Here and Now podcast. On today's show, we'll be talking about the movie Morbius. I'll also be discussing a new piece of tech that Sony has come up with, a camera that watches you as you watch TV. Is that a good idea? Netflix has lost a ton of subscribers and does what appears to be a 180 on their previous stances. We'll talk about that. And I'll be doing the inaugural PSA segment on this show. Because giving sensible, wholesome advice is definitely what the show is all about. All of that coming up on today's show, so stay tuned. Okay, so I must admit that I did see the terrible ratings that Mobius was given before I watched the movie. I think it's been impossible to avoid if you've been on the internet at all um, ever since the movie was released. So on the off chance that you don't know, this movie was rated so poorly that there's this whole meme culture surrounding it and people started putting out these fake infographics about how Morbius is the most critically acclaimed movie of all time and, and so on. Uh, in a nutshell, it seems like everyone really hated this movie. So by the time I watched it, I was basically on a mission to find out if it was as terrible as they say. Uh, the premise of Morbius is actually really simple. Morbius and his childhood friend Milo have a rare blood disease which results in them being physically disabled and almost certainly facing an early death. Uh, Morbius becomes a brilliant doctor and scientist. He invents a synthetic blood which saves uh, saves lots of lives and earns him a Nobel Prize. He then decides to combine the DNA of vampire bats and humans to create a cure for the blood disease that him and Milo have. Because, as we all know, screwing around with bats in labs has historically been a perfectly safe practice. Not that it's ever happened before. But even if it did, it would be perfectly safe. Anyway, to nobody's surprise, combining bat and human DNA is a terrible idea, and it turns Morbius into this vampire-like creature with superhuman abilities, but only for a few hours before he needs to drink a bunch of blood, otherwise his disease takes hold again. Drinking his synthetic blood only works temporarily, for reasons that are never really made clear, and so he needs to figure out something before he has to start drinking real human blood. But Milo takes the cure without Morbius's permission and also turns into one of the vampire things. And unlike Morbius, Milo really enjoys being a superhuman and has no problems with killing innocent people and drinking their blood. Uh, Morbius develops some sort of antidote to the cure and uses it to kill Milo. And that's basically it. Obviously, there's a lot more stuff inserted into the middle of all this, but for all intents and purposes, this is the story of Morbius. Now here's the thing. All on its own, the story I just described could actually make for a not bad movie. It's a premise that could, with some decent writing and acting, be turned into a pretty fun movie. But don't worry, Morbius has neither of those things. The writing in this movie is sloppy, incoherent, and downright cringeworthy at times. And here's an example of the quality of dialogue you can expect from this film. We're mixing human DNA with bat DNA. I have no idea what you're talking, talking about. Yeah, wow, she managed to complete his sentence. That's how well she knows him. Yeah, really impressive. Uh, that, by the way, was Martine Bancroft, played by 
Adria Ariona, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Martine is Morbius's junior sort of uh, partner in his lab. She is one of the big problems with this movie because Martine is completely uninspired and useless. And by useless, I mean she plays little to no actual role in the story. Morbius develops the cure in secret by himself, he develops the antidote by himself, he fights and defeats the bad guy himself with the antidote he made himself. I guess Martine was around to inject him with the cure, but I'm pretty sure a well-respected guy like him could have found someone else to do it, like, I don't know, Nicholas, his adoptive father and a highly experienced doctor himself. And Martine does retrieve some supplies for Morbius from the lab that's been cordoned off by the police. But the ability to run an errand hardly justifies a character being the secondary protagonist that we're actually meant to give a damn about. At the end of the day, Martine, for all the movie's attempts to present her as a brilliant scientist, is relegated to being nothing more than a damsel in distress. And even that attempt at giving her a useful role, where she gives Morbius extra strength by having him drink her blood, falls apart when you think about the implications of it. How is Morbius able to drink just a small bit of her blood without completely draining her, even though she's already been attacked by Milo at this point? If that were possible, then Morbius could just drink some of her blood whenever he needed to, and this whole issue of him requiring real human blood would be solved, thereby torpedoing the overarching big problem that the, the movie repeatedly reminds us of. And if she's only able to survive because she happens to have drank some of Morbius's blood in the process, um, a fact which the movie lets you know with this comically awkward shot of her licking her lips as it happens, then it amounts to the same thing. With that single scene, they've destroyed their own setup. Perhaps the writers realize this, which is why the movie never bothers explicitly resolving that problem of him requiring human blood, except for suggesting that he'll kill himself, which he does not. The effects in this movie are also pretty bad for the most part. I thought the face morphing was actually quite cool, they did a good job with that, um, for the characters kind of transitioning between their normal uh, human state and then their, their uh, vampire superhuman state. But it seems like they blew their entire budget on that, and the rest of the effects look like something you might have expected to see maybe 20 years ago. And speaking of time, that's another issue with this movie. I presume it's taking place in the present day because of the vehicles and computers and TVs we've shown, but when the movie flashes back to 25 years ago, we've shown cars from the 70s and early 80s, and in that flashback, we see Milo arriving at the hospital in what appears to be a vehicle from the 1940s or so. So I don't know, I have no real idea when any of the stuff was supposed to be happening. The movie also tells us that Morbius is smart in the most ridiculous way. We're shown that Milo's hospital equipment fails and so Morbius, as a teenager, opens the cover of the device, immediately sees a blown fuse, and replaces it with a spring from a ballpoint pen. This is followed by a scene with Nicholas waxing lyrical about how brilliant and gifted Morbius is and how he's going to be sent to a school for gifted kids. I mean, seriously, he bypassed a fuse with a piece of metal. Sure, kids who aren't technically minded at all wouldn't have done that, but it's hardly worthy of being a plot device in a movie that's trying to tell you that this character is some kind of genius. And none of the stuff is helped by the fact that Mobius and Martine are written and acted with zero charisma whatsoever. I mean, Jared Leto, I think he's a, a great actor, but here he comes across as just 
too serious to be charming, but too poorly written to convey any real depth or provoke any thought. Martine is basically a nothing character, uh, she's just a vessel for whatever underwhelming thing the plot requires her to do next. She makes no difficult choices and doesn't develop in any way, shape or form. By the end of the movie, we know nothing about her personality other than her liking Morbius. The only saving grace of the cast is Matt Smith, who plays Milo. He's a compelling villain, and his motives make you stop and think about what you would do if you were in his position, having battled a debilitating sickness your entire life, and finally having a shot at being on the other end of the spectrum for once. Smith is also the only person who seems to be having fun with his role, and some of his scenes got a genuine laugh out of me. Uh, those were the only laughs, mind you, because this movie is otherwise completely devoid of any humour. It takes itself too seriously to be funny, but also just isn't good enough for you to take it seriously. Whatever the case, you know it's a bad sign when the only charismatic and borderline likable character in a superhero movie is the villain. The movie's moral compass is also nonsensical. Morbius does kill the entire crew of the ship that he's doing the illegal experiment on. Uh, the movie tries to gloss over this by pointing out that these were mercenaries and thugs, Nevertheless, they were completely justified in opening fire at Morbius. They happened across an aggressive vampire. Not to mention that he went on a rampage throughout the ship, deliberately seeking out and killing men who hadn't even been a part of the initial confrontation. In fact, Morbius very likely murdered more people in that one scene than Milo did throughout the movie. To make things worse, it's never really explained how he manages to tone down his abilities and prevent himself from just going on these killing sprees every time. He just kind of chooses not to, because the movie needs us to realise that he's the good guy. The plot also relies on a ridiculous bit of coincidence where Morbius just so happens to hear some guys talking about their counterfeiting lab. He then follows them and steals their lab, and somehow turns it into a high-tech DNA lab uh, using nothing but the parts that Martine is able to smuggle out of their main lab, who uses nothing but her bare hands in the process, and then he develops the new antidote in this new lab. We're also introduced to two detectives who only serve to waste more of our time. Uh, Mobius could have just been arrested by some generic cops for the prison scene to work. We really didn't need to be introduced to any specific characters, especially ones which went on to play exactly no role in the outcome of the film. Just about the only positive thing I can say about this film is that at least it has the courtesy of being over quite quickly. It runs for just one hour and four minutes, which actually surprised me because it seemed to be dragging on forever. So, should you watch this movie? No. Morbius is one of those movies with characters you've got no reason to care about, a plot full of nonsense and holes, underwhelming cinematography, and worst of all, it takes itself far more seriously than it has any right to. And so I would recommend that you just uh, just give this one a pass. Alright, moving on to our next item for today. Now, I'm not entirely sure what happened to Sony's TV business over the years. I remember there was a time in the mid to late 2000s when their TVs were going head to head with the big brands like Samsung or LG and so on. And they were pretty impressive devices for their time, at least as far as I could see. But over the last decade or so, it seems as if they've lost almost all of their ground to Samsung and LG. Basically, everyone I know, when they go TV shopping today, what they really want is a fancy high-end Samsung or LG. And if they can't afford the expensive Samsung or LG, then they get one of the cheaper Samsungs or LGs. 
And if they can't afford one of those, then they get one of the more budget-friendly Chinese brands. Now, I'm sure someone out there can pull up a statistic or chart or something and say, well, actually, Sony sold X number of TVs last year. Well, yeah, I, I know that they do still sell TVs, but you know what I mean. They don't seem to have much of the market anymore, at least not as much as they used to before. Anyway, to my surprise, I recently came across a Sony video on YouTube promoting what they say will enable you to, and I'm quoting the ad here, step up to a smarter TV experience. The device in question is called the Bravia Cam, and you connect it to certain models of Sony Bravia TVs. The way this works is the camera faces you while you're sitting in front of your TV, and then it makes adjustments to the TV depending on where you're sitting in relation to the screen. Now, I have to admit, at first, I actually thought this might be impressive. I thought that maybe they'd figured out some way to display the image so it somehow looks as though you're sitting in front of the TV even if you're off to one side or something to that effect. Uh, don't laugh at me for thinking of that. I know it's ridiculous, which is why I would have actually been willing to give this thing a pass if it was able to do that. But no. The Bravia Cam, as far as I can tell, will simply adjust things like the brightness of the display, and it'll adjust the sound between left and right, and it'll also increase the volume of the dialogue when you're further away. When hearing all of that, you might realize that we already have a device that does all of those things. And in fact, we've had it for like 60 years. It's called a remote. It'll, <laughs> it'll increase the volume of the dialogue when you're further away. Or how about... If you can't hear the TV, you just turn it up. If it's too loud, you turn it down. We've been doing this for decades, I promise it isn't difficult. The ad also doesn't really explain what will happen when there's multiple people in different positions in the room watching the TV. Instead, it has this ridiculous depiction of an entire group of people moving from one couch to the other. As a group. What? That's not how people use couches. You always put as much distance between you and everyone else when you're choosing a couch, which is why you'll usually find one person directly in front of the TV and like one or two off to the sides. Since the ad doesn't mention how these kinds of situations are handled, I think it's safe to assume that the system will devolve into an unpredictable mess, probably alternating between complete silence and deafening blaring uh, of volume, while the screen frantically strobes between maximum and minimum brightness. It'll be a really quick and expensive way to turn the inside of your house into a tacky nightclub. Because, let's be honest, we're all familiar with how this kind of stuff works. This motion-detecting, wireless, smart stuff. It's amazing when they demo it for you in the store, and it's really cool the first few times you try it at home. But then, over a couple of weeks, each part just breaks or becomes unreliable and buggy to the point where you just end up tossing the whole thing in the back of a cupboard with all the other junk that you've fallen for in the past. Oh, but th there is actually one feature of the Bravia Cam that you couldn't do with your remote. That is, it will detect if, <laughs> it will detect if your child gets too close to the screen, in which case it will show a proximity warning on the screen. So instead of just the annoyance of having a child walking up to the screen, 
This contraption will now obstruct the bit of the TV you can still see, with a warning message that you'll already be shouting verbally anyway. Or actually, you may be struggling to shout it verbally because your TV's spy camera has cranked up the volume to a million for no apparent reason. In which case, now that I think about it, you could probably fix that problem with the remote as well, namely by grabbing it and throwing it at the child or whoever happens to be blocking your TV. The main problem here isn't the privacy concerns of having this thing uh, watching you and everyone else in front of your TV. I mean, that's certainly one of the problems. But no, uh, the main problem is that this is just a, just a really lousy idea. You know, if you have the money to buy this device and you can't think of anything else to spend it on, you frankly deserve whatever privacy-invading creepiness you get subjected to. Okay, so speaking of creepiness, it's now time to discuss Netflix. At the beginning of the second quarter of 2022, the streaming giant's stock price collapsed by 30-something percent, wiping out over $50 billion in market value. This came on the back of the news that they'd lost more than 200,000 subscribers in the previous quarter. This whole thing has been huge news. There were multiple headlines and news segments about it. And yet, just like with the hilarious demise of CNN+, this appears to be a case of everyone seeing the writing on the wall except the experts who were paid hand over fist to do so. Now, Back in the early 2010s, when Netflix really took off, uh, many of us, including yours truly, saw a couple of problems with their business model. Netflix was essentially a middleman. They didn't create the content on their platform, and they certainly didn't create the internet. All they were really doing was marrying those two things together. Obviously, they were creating value in the process, they were providing all the technical facilities to host the platform and the content, which is why they were so successful. The problem is, being a middleman is always a precarious arrangement, because neither your supplier nor your customer actually wants you. They'd both prefer to cut you out and keep a larger slice of the pie for themselves. And if what you're bringing to the table can be done by other people with deep pockets, and the people who created all your content do in fact have deep pockets, then it's a no-brainer. The writing isn't just on the wall, it's a bright neon sign blinking at you. Clearly, I wasn't the only one who felt this way. Not only did all of the big studios start pulling out their content and making it exclusively available on their own streaming services, but Netflix started rolling out Netflix original content. In another place and time, this might have turned things around for them. But there was a problem. Netflix original shows were generally garbage. Obviously, there were exceptions like House of Cards and Stranger Things, but for the most part, I know I view the Netflix symbol on the thumbnail as an instant cue to scroll past. And if you do fall for the description of a Netflix movie or show, you'll often find that this is a foreign language production with dubbed English audio or that it starts out with a really cool and captivating pilot episode and then just evolves into like a teen flick full of cliches and predictable plots combined with lackluster acting and cinematography with overuse of filters and color grading. In other words, exactly the kind of content you expect to get when your only requirement for dishing out money to filmmakers is that they have a detectable pulse. But then they went even further. 
not only did they make low-quality content, they also churned out all kinds of fringe content crammed full of woke messaging, the kind of claptrap that could only appeal to activists and not just normal people. Perhaps most memorably, they even distributed a movie that involved underaged girls in revealing outfits performing inappropriate and suggestive dancing. So combine the volcano of garbage that is their content, and the deliberate political preaching, and the fact that there's now plenty of competition in the streaming business, and that Netflix has actually hiked prices quite substantially in most parts of the world, and it's easy to understand why Netflix lost a bunch of subscribers. Now, to be fair, Netflix is still the largest streaming service in the world, and the company is not about to disappear or anything. But considering how terrible their content is, and the fact that so much of the really good stuff is now only available on their competitors' platforms, I have to wonder how many of those subscriptions are just dormant accounts, people who haven't gotten around to cancelling their credit card charges yet. Now, to their credit, Netflix seems to be realizing the error of their ways. They recently sent out a notice to all their employees, effectively saying that if you're offended by a certain piece of content, well, tough. You can pack up and leave. We're not going to remove good, profitable content from our platform uh, just because it doesn't fall in line with your personal views and activism. They also appear to have some genuinely promising-looking stuff coming up. There's a new Ricky Gervais special that just launched on the platform. Uh, that seems to be pretty good. There's also an upcoming Mr. Bean series about how he destroys a mansion while facing off against a bee. Uh, that looks that looks interesting, I guess you could say. I also saw a trailer for a movie called Grey Man about Ryan Gosling playing a spy. Uh, that seems that seems pretty cool. Seems like something I'd be interested in watching. Although it does make you wonder, you know, back in 2013, well, I may be getting the year wrong there, but in 2013 or so, we all saw Netflix as this world-changing company. Like They were shaping the future and completely changing the way that we consume content. And uh, you fast forward 10 years and we're sitting here wondering if their fortunes will be changed by Mr. Bean and an insect. But we'll see what happens. Uh, seeing the error of their ways is a huge first step. Uh, one that many companies neglect until it's too late. So maybe Netflix will pull themselves out of the deliberate nosedive that they seem to have been in for the uh, for the last couple of years. All right, now let's get to our first ever PSA. Like many people over the last two years with the pandemic and whatnot, I've become used to ordering stuff from the supermarket on an app on my phone and it gets delivered to my doorstep within a couple of minutes. It's all very easy and fast and the convenience is well worth the additional fee that you're charged. But this week, I had to buy something that wasn't available at the supermarket with the good delivery app, which meant I had to go to the other supermarket in person. To be honest, I had completely forgotten, or maybe I'd just become accustomed to it in the first place, about what a cesspool of human behavior supermarkets are. I'm not sure what it is about them, but it's as if every shred of basic decency and courtesy and spatial awareness just evaporates as soon as you enter the parking lot. What you'll notice is these zombies meandering through the parking lot, one hand limply guiding their shopping cart and the other holding the phone that 90% of their attention is directed to 
while they're strolling right through the path of traffic. Now, these are grown adults. They have driver's licenses. They're legally permitted to operate a real vehicle on public roads. Yet when they're commandeering anything besides an actual vehicle, it's as if they have no obligation to pay any attention whatsoever to the moving vehicles around them. And after you've obediently crawled behind one of these gormless slots for minutes on end, burning fuel that's now worth its weight in gold, you think the ordeal is over when they finally arrive at their own car and start loading their shopping. Only to find that what they're now going to do is leave their cart parked carelessly across the road while they transfer one item at a time from the cart into their car. While periodically pausing to check their phone, of course. And obviously, this sort of person always has like 4,000 items in their cart. Once you've parked, after resisting the urge to floor it and plow through the hordes of the undead, things don't get any better once you're inside the store. There you'll find much of the same behavior. People who, with complete abandon, will stop dead in the middle of the aisle while they stare at items on the shelves as though they hold the meaning of life itself, while also pausing to check on their phone every now and again. And when you try to squeeze past them or say excuse me, they will glare at you as if you're the impolite person in that interaction. You know, I can understand people who are in their early 20s doing this sort of thing, uh, people who only started living independently like four seconds ago, and so going shopping can actually be an unfamiliar and confusing task. But the people I see doing this, it's almost always someone who looks middle-aged and older. I mean, you've done this thousands of times before. There is nothing whatsoever about boxes of milk that could still be baffling you after all this time. And then you get to the cashier and the person in front of you wants to do basically everything other than just pay for their damn groceries. No, they, they want to pay bills and, and transfer money and book a bus ticket and finance their next home, all while intermittently checking their phone, obviously. And the whole thing is just an infuriating ordeal that takes way longer than it needs to, thanks entirely to the stupidity of your fellow shoppers. So please, if you're walking into a supermarket this week, unless you're checking your list, Put your phone away. Watch where you're walking and watch where you're stopping, especially when you're among moving cars out in the parking lot. When you get to the cashier, pay for your crap and leave so everyone else can do the same. All the other stuff you want to do, go figure out how to do it on the internet like everyone else. In fact, you can almost certainly do it on that very same phone that you're always looking at. If you do this, we can all enter and leave the supermarket faster and without feeling the need to throw napalm on everyone else. And that, uh, that's going to be our PSA for this week. Alright, that's where we'll be leaving it for today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe, like, leave a review, or whatever you're able to do on the platform that you're listening on. This is the Here and Now podcast, available on all major podcasting platforms. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great week ahead. And I'll see you again next time.